Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Well, welcome. Happy New Year. Uh, this is our first series of 2016, and uh, I'm excited about it. Last year was a good year, and I, this year is already beginning to shape up with many things looking like it's going to be even better this year at Quest. So thank you for being a part of it. We are praying for you, that God would grow you in strength and confidence in how God leads you, how God speaks to you, how God wants to show up in your relationships, in your emotions, in your, in your thoughts, in your work, in your fun, in your, in your relationships, all across the board. And we're hoping for blessing and generosity for you so that you can live a blessed life and enjoy being a blessing to others because I think God's got a lot of really great stuff for us this year. So this first series of the year is about that theme. It's all about confidence. It's all about confidence. I was talking about this a little over a month ago at a breakfast with uh, Joe Simonet, who's sitting right here. He's one of our board members, the chair of the elder, the chairperson of the elder board. And, and we were talking about this idea and, uh, over breakfast, and he showed me this video done by Hiram Granny. It's uh, the son of a, social, a famous social scientist, Joseph Granny. And, it's, and what he's doing in this is he's trying to replicate the experiments from many years ago of Solomon Ash about conformity to social peer pressure. And the clip illustrates this idea of the power of confidence in a really interesting way that I thought, wow, boy, that, that, that can translate a lot to how we think about life and faith. So would you just take a moment and enjoy the clip? It's a really powerful illustration, isn't it, of the power of the confidence of one person speaking up in a group to make a difference for truth and reality, isn't it? To bring the conversation back to truth. It easily makes a big difference. Now, they already mentioned uh, calling us old geezers, didn't they, that uh, this is not just adolescence that this happens to. This is all of us that this kind of stuff happens to. And isn't it true? It's so easy for us to form strong opinions based upon what other people say because of how what they say may appeal to our emotion or may appeal to our personal preferences or, or just because of our need to be accepted. We can so easily adopt an opinion without good reasoning behind it. And uh, it may not be different lines, uh, different length lines, but it may be questions of faith. It may be questions of morality and and how we choose to live differently as followers of Jesus. I mean, sometimes the, the questions in that arena, especially we get, are so difficult that at first glance, the lines may even look almost the same at first glance, and it becomes very difficult to know how to respond to them with a sense of you feeling God's hope or hope for the situation in the moment. I mean, there have been far too many times in my life where I've been faced with questions that I just, frankly, I just didn't even know what to do with. I remember one years ago, one question that came up to me, this guy came to me and said, I grew up in a church being sexually abused by a leader in the church. Where was God in that? I mean, how, how do you respond to that? I mean, this is a question I've heard many times, and maybe you have too. If God knows everyone before they're born and knows they're going to be born in a society that is completely anti-Christian, where no one can preach the name of Jesus, then how can it be fair for God to say they might not be saved and go to hell because they don't believe in Him? I mean, tough, tough question. Or like this question, which is a much more personal question I've, I've heard. People say to me, God made me 
with this chemical imbalance. And this chemical imbalance causes me to be very strongly predisposed to these anger outbursts or at other times very strong depression. How can it be fair of God to hold me accountable for the sin I commit when those things happen? Tough question, right? I mean, is God just angry? Is he just capricious? Is he just mean? This series is about helping us become more confident in what we believe and also in how we share what we believe. Not just more confident, but but more winsome. I mean, truly becoming what we talk about a lot of times, friends with faith, where our life life and our conversations, even in disagreements on hot, contentious topics, actually build bridges of friendship with the people around us. And this series also points to a bedrock truth for all of us in, our, in, our, in how we follow God and how we find abundance and vitality in our life as followers of Jesus and also how we miss it sometimes. The book of James gets to this issue very quickly, and let me paraphrase four verses in one sentence. The brother, uh, half-brother of Jesus, now the leader of the Jerusalem church, says this in James 1, 4 through 8. He says, don't be double-minded in what you believe or you will not receive any of the abundance God intends you to live in. Now, we often misinterpret this phrase that James uses, double-minded. We often look at that phrase and say, well, that means we're talking about two-faced people. We're talking about hypocritical people, right? But that's not at all what James is actually talking about. What James is talking about in in that context is that we have, that we live life with this lack of confidence in knowing the reasons for our faith. And this lack of confidence then therefore makes us unstable. It makes us face the real critical questions of life with uncertainty. And, in the, and it makes us face the, the, the questions of the reasons why we would live one way and not another way with uncertainty. And therefore, that kind of life leaves us vulnerable to turmoil, to anxiety, to uncertainty, and even to complis- completely miss what God is wanting to do in our lives. Because James is actually talking to believers here. He says, too many believers in Jesus are actually missing the abundance he really is trying to give them because they're uncertain and they're wavering on what is right and what is not right all the time. So let's focus this further. If an unchurched friend came to you and they were a skeptic of Christianity and they asked you, why do you follow Jesus? What would your answer be? How confident are you in your answer? Would you really be able to explain the why of you following Jesus? Or would you do what most people do and just say how you became a Christian? If you say how you became a Christian, you're probably going to say something like, well, I got invited by a friend to church and, you know, I just kind of recognized my sin over time and I asked forgiveness and I prayed a prayer to accept Jesus. I got baptized and everything since then has been so much different. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the process, five, five easy steps to abundant life. And, and it's true. Many of us have processed our decision through those actions, right? But it sounds trite to someone who doesn't believe. I mean, it sounds a little superstitious and formulaic. It's kind of like, you know, rub the rabbit's foot once a day, rub it twice on Fridays, and rub it three times on Friday the 13th, and you're going to have good luck. I mean, there's not, to the unbeliever, there's not a whole lot of difference between those two statements. They both seem like superstition to them. See, why you became a Christian and how you became a Christian are not the same question. 
I mean, think about it. If instead of meeting that Christian who invited you to church who eventually prayed the prayer to follow Jesus, if you'd met a Buddhist and you'd gone to the Buddhist temple and you'd taken the just Zen course there, you probably would have become a Buddhist in the mind of somebody listening to you. I heard a story this last week of a, of a guy who had a friend who was a Muslim who became a Christian, and when his mom asked him why he became a Christian, he answered with the how. And his mom came back at him and said, well, it sounds like you've been brainwashed. And he said to his mom, well, uh, if you knew it was in the mind of a young man, you'd be glad that my brain was washed, right? Answering why we are followers of Jesus with how we became a Christian leaves people thinking we're superstitious or we're just brainwashed. Let's go further. What if a skeptic asked you very specific questions about why you choose to live the way you live or why you think the way you think that's different because you're a follower of Jesus than the cultural norm around you. You know those those tough questions we get especially that leave us so vulnerable, vulnerable to being labeled a bigot or intolerant in our culture today. How would you answer? How confident are you that both what you say and how you say it would be gentle, respectful, kind, winsome. It would build a bridge to deeper friendship with the people around you. How confident are you that the answer wouldn't just be your cultural context or your personal preference, but it would actually be also based on solid biblical, emotional, relational, intellectual reasoning? See, the core verse of our series is is summarized in our graphic, and and it says this. It says, be confidently prepared to share the reason why you follow Jesus and do it in a gentle and respectful way. But let's read the text in full, and let me just warn you ahead of time. This is the Quest version. This is not the NIV or ESV. We actually went through a bunch of respected translations and took each phrase and picked the phrases that we felt best communicated in our day-to-day without emotional baggage. Because, for instance, the large majority of translations use the word defense. Well, when you hear the word defense in our culture today, you normally think of a protective, emotional, difficult, combative argument, right? And that's not at all what, Paul, what Peter is saying in this context. If, if uh, I was back in my seminary Greek class with Dr. Mansfield uh, and I was translating this verse, this would be how I would have translated it, starting in verse 15. Always be confidently prepared to share the hope-filled reasons why you wholeheartedly follow Jesus as your Lord. And do it in a gentle and respectful way, keeping a clear conscience so that even in the ways in which you are slandered for your faith and for living in a different manner because of following Christ, those who speak disdainfully of you may humble themselves and soften their hearts because of slandering you for doing good and you being so gentle and respectful even when attacked wrongly. So, This verse, Peter is actually addressing it to the persecuted church. And the context of it, starting in verse 1 of that chapter, is he's actually talking to them about marriage and and honor and, 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 and talking to them how they can live in marriage in a way that honors each other and honors the culture. And, and, and he's actually telling them to live in a different way than the culture around them lives. In fact, he's saying to them that the husbands should treat their wives as equal, as co-heirs, he's actually saying in that text, which is different. It's going to stand out. And then in verse 8 through 14, he goes on to talk about how we should speak. 
how we should align our motives and our goals in a world that persecutes us, how we should align those with God, and that we should speak, he says, with truthfulness and goodness. And then he even explains why he tells us in that section to sublimate our desire to seek justice first when we're treated wrongly. And he says, instead of, approach the, instead of approaching those who are hostile towards you, who persecute you with trying to get justice, instead approach them with sympathy, understanding them, and compassion. And instead of repaying evil with evil, repay evil with kindness. And he actually sets this in the middle of this. He he says this is a really strong command. At verse 10 he says, Whoever would love life and see good days must, and he basically says, do these things that I just talked to you about. And then we get to the passage we read just a moment ago. And what what Peter is basically setting up for us is is that we need to learn the because of why we live certain ways and why we think certain things. He He says you should be able to say we live this way because we think this way because we believe this way because we hold this moral stance because and related to the gospel we treat our spouse this way because of following Jesus says we should do this. We repay evil with kindness because he wants us to have a confident because in our life. So we don't live tossed around by the waves of life and by divided opinions, but we live with this peace and this focus and this confidence. And that's hard. I mean, basically what he's saying to the persecuted church he's talking to is if you're going to be killed for sharing your faith, at least be clear about the hope-filled reason you're living the way you do and sharing your faith with others, even at the threat of death. And in today's world, clarity is also really hard, isn't it? In talking about a lot of these questions, it is so easy in talking about questions of faith or morality to easily take on the label judge of being judgmental, intolerant, and bigoted when you are not in your heart or not even wanting to be that way. Isn't it true? Right? Furthermore, Peter's command here to share our faith isn't, isn't a command that he's making to the experts, to the specialists. It's not just made to the pastors and the theologians with you know, doctoral-level academic degrees and stuff like that. He's not addressing that. He's actually addressing it to the church as a whole. He's saying the ability to do this is part of the most basic part of defining a person who is a follower of Jesus, to have this kind of confidence. Learning to share our reasons for the faith effectively is not master's level or doctoral level work for people like that. It is Christ following 101. Every one of us is to learn how to share the hope-filled reasons for the why we choose to believe and live the way we do because we follow Jesus. Now, to better understand what, Paul, what Peter's saying here, let's examine the phrase by phrase uh, the, some of this text. He says, always be prepared. This is more than just cramming for a test, right? Many of you over the holidays made resolutions that you're going to be more physically fit this year. So in the meantime, you've gotten out your new pair of shoes and you've headed off to the gym with a goal of running the Quest 5K, right? In April, coming up in April, you can sign up for that if you haven't already. Go to quest.org slash 5K. You can have your businesses or you personally can uh, sponsor that that event and 100% of the sponsorship goes to some great organizations in the community. 
So what you're doing right now is you're starting to walk, right? And you're going and doing some squats and you're working on your core and you're going to build yourself up over the next few weeks to be able to be running so that you can be ready for the 5K. And when that time time comes in April 2nd and you cross that finish line, we're going to celebrate the fact that you made your goal and we're going to celebrate the fact that we raised a whole bunch of money for kids and families in need in our back own backyard through warm and, and giving to big brothers, big sisters as well. And then what's going to happen after the race? Well, it's springtime. Kids' sports are going to take off like a rocket, and the schedule's going to be crazy. And then summer heat's going to come, and it's no fun to run in the heat and work out in the heat. And fall schedule's going to come, and it's going to be crazy. And, and you're going to gradually, like many of us, probably fall from going three to four times a week exercising to gradually working out one to two times a week to maybe three times a month to one time a month, and then the cold and the holiday schedule and the busyness of November, December, and the snow and all that's going to hit, and you're probably not going to work out for five or six weeks over Christmas. And So next New Year's, here's the question. Are you still in shape? Are you still prepared? See, preparation in this um, passage is a, little, a, a lot more like my 80-year-old neighbor from years ago who rain or shine, he would get up uh, four to six days a week and he'd run three to five miles. And he'd do his core exercises, he'd do his squats, he'd do his stretching, he'd actually go work with a trainer. All because he was part of the senior Olympics. And in his own words, he said, I want to beat that cheating Russian who beat me out of first place by five seconds the last time we raced. He was a character. He was funny. Peter is saying if we want to be prepared, we need to have regular consistent habits of learning, always refining, always preparing to be better at understanding who Jesus is and understanding what the Bible teaches about all these things that we need to make decisions to live by and also be better at listening and understanding people around us so we can communicate clearly and winsomely and overcome some of the life assumption barriers that they have because they were raised differently or have traumatic experiences or other perceptions. And aren't those all good reasons to be involved in a small group, actually talking with others about your faith so we learn to do that together? That's part of the reason that's so important to do intentional studies with other people is because we also learn about other people and how to communicate better. See, while our body, even with good fitness habits, may decline with age, God's intent for us is to be prepared spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, to become stronger and stronger and more and more agile in understanding Him and others and navigating decisions and conversations and relationships. How to communicate and demonstrate to others who God is to us and who He can be to them when we're talking with them. Which leads to the next phrase. The next phrase is share the reason. This word is actually, this is actually translated from a word called apologia, from what we, what we get our current discipline called apologetics in, in theology. And this idea of apologetics is often inadequately understood by people. Some hear the word and they think, well, I have to argue about truth with people. When I'm done, I have to apologize for being too mad, right? That's not it at all. And others look at this and say it's just all about making rational arguments to overwhelm people with intellect to be convince them that Jesus is who he is. And yes, there's rational arguments that are in there, but that's only partly true and it kind of takes it in a way that isn't quite right. The core of apologetics is simply clearly attractively sharing the gospel of Jesus in relationship through both words and action. 
It isn't introducing a dose of confusion and lofty academic thinking into a debate to win the argument because you're so profound. It's actually removing the confusion and sharing the profoundness of the gospel in clear and simple ways. See, the gospel of Jesus does have ideas and beliefs. But it's not just ideas and beliefs. The gospel of Jesus is also about relationship with God. So apologetics also has to do with knowing the presence of God and living in the power of God in your own life and, and learning to how to minister that power of God to others. Another great reason why you might want to sign up for the Healing One course if you haven't already done it or, or maybe go look at a small group that's learning to pray out there so that you can learn to minister and be a part of the power of God moving among us with other people. In the gospel of God and apologetics is also about lifestyle. And we alluded to that in the context earlier. It's about learning to be so self-aware and secure emotionally in Christ that we can stand in the face of hostility and conflict and persecution and respond with peace and gentleness, to repay evil with love and good to believe the best in others, and to actually treat them like we believe the best in others, even when they're coming across as mean, rebellious, manipulative, harsh, or whatever they're coming across as. See, the assumption Peter is actually making here is because you are living this way, with grace and kindness, holiness being set apart and living a different way, that others will ask you questions. So Peter says we should be prepared to give a hope-filled reason for our faith when we're asked. But the flip side of his assumption in this is also is if you're not being asked questions, then you're probably not living enough like Jesus and different enough from people around you to be asked those. Because the normal Christ-following 101 level of faith regularly involves using words to share your hope with other people. Now, he adds actually that phrase. He says, not just reason, but a hope-filled reason. Now, certainly, that means that we need to be able to represent the, well the gospel of Jesus, which is the hope for all of us. And if you're, just as a reminder, the word gospel actually means sharing good news. That's what it actually means. Now, Peter's actually, I think, making two points in, in putting this hope-filled reason together. He's, I think he's saying to us, first, can you talk about the questions that people have in a way that clearly and accurately includes not just the answer to the question, but accurately portrays the gospel of Jesus as well. I mean, the gospel includes facts, right? We know that. The facts of the gospel are Jesus came, God came, He loves us so much that He came to fulfill justice by taking the penalty of our sin upon Himself. And as part of that, He justifies us. He makes us right with Him. He gives us salvation and He gives us eternal life now and forever. And a part of that as well is that he, we have this acceptance of God that is so secure that we get to be now called children of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ of the inheritance of God. And God's patient love for us is so sure and so great that He realizes just because He forgives us and just because He justifies us that there is still much wrong thinking, blind motives, sin, hurt, and damage in our lives that's going to have to be worked out over time. So God realizes that means that we're going to continue to fail 
we're going to continue to sin as long as we live in this life. So he gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us, to help us grow and change. And yet he treats us with patient kindness as we continue to grow and continue to fail along the way. Because the good news is all about that our security of relationship with him is no longer threatened ever again. That's the good news that we receive when we become followers of Jesus. Can we share that in the context of personal difficult questions with people so that they hear and experience that love, that forgiveness, that acceptance, that security from us, even in their questioning? But let's get even more specific. If someone asks you a hot button moral question, maybe something about sex or money or marriage. Just let your mind run for just a second and you'll probably have a dozen questions from our culture today on those topics. Can you talk about those questions in a way that 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 person with whom you are talking walks away hearing the biblical reason for why you choose to live the way you live in following Christ and also understand within that the gospel as good news instead of judgmental bigotry. See, do they walk away with an accurate picture or an inaccurate picture of who Jesus is by your answer? See, the gospel is good news, but it's not good news to anyone until they hear it and understand it as both good and as great news for them and their friends. You see, if nothing else happens in this series, I hope that all of us will see how we can achieve this goal of making that happen in difficult conversations more readily and more regularly when we talk with people. The second way apologetics is often inadequately understood is we often think it is mostly about us figuring things out, so we have to be these intellectual giants, and saying things well. Now, there's truth that we want to challenge ourselves for there, but that's insufficient as well because apologetics is as much about understanding how the other person learns, how the other person arrives at accepting what truth is for them, and understanding the difficulties they see, they have in their life or the different perspectives they have in their life that become barriers for them to even understand what we're talking about, as well as sharing what we believe on our story. Think about sharing the reason for our hope more like imparting to the reasoning to the listener. Or put another way, helping them reason it out themselves so they come to their own conclusion as they interact with you. Now, there's a guy named Bob Pike who I knew in the past, and he's a follower of Jesus. And in the 80s and 90s and, and early 2000s, he had received dozens of awards for being the number one corporate trainer in America. And he talked about how people learn, and he said this. He says, it's all about participant-centered training. Apologetics is all is a participant-centered thing. It is as much about helping them ask the right questions and leading people to answer the right questions as it is about the right answers. I mean, the right answer to the wrong question is always wrong. We've heard that, right? And the reality is and a partially adequate answer to the right question is always better than a perfect answer to the wrong question. So even if we only get partially there, it's better. 
As we go through the next few weeks, we're going to talk about that more, and we're going to talk about it from the perspective of two perspectives. We're going to try to help us learn to discern the real question that gets more accurately to what you feel your need is in an area you lack confidence or your friend is in in lacking confidence. And we're also going to learn how to use questions better to help ourselves and other people uncover the real question we need to be thinking about to get to the answer we're really searching for. And next week, let me just do this. Uh, Next week, I want all of you to bring your smartphones, your tablets, your laptops with you to church. And I want you to log into our free Wi-Fi right at the beginning of service so you're ready because we're going to do live interaction both through electronic and some other live interaction next week. It's going to be a really fun Sunday. And if you don't have those and don't come with that, we'll try to have a paper way so that you can also be a participant. But if you have the electronics, bring them. Let's overload our Wi-Fi, okay? Let's just have fun with it next week. Uh, Jesus was the master of asking questions. He was a master at it. And let me just quickly illustrate a little bit what I'm talking about, what we'll talk about more in the coming weeks. In discussing faith with someone who doesn't believe, one of the big questions that often comes up is phrased in some form or fashion like this. He says, if you say that Jesus is God and the one and only Savior, are you telling me that my good grandmother, who doesn't believe in Jesus, is going to hell? Right? I mean, that's an easy question to answer and build close friendship over, isn't it? I mean, you could just have it just, that's just like a coffee cup, nonchalant. What is the simple belief behind this question? Every good person goes to heaven, right? That's the simple belief behind it. Jesus faced that same type of question. In fact, the one instance is recorded in all three of the three of the Gospels, Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18. Jesus is approached by a really good really intelligent, successful, wealthy young man. He's like the really good, kind, moral, up-and-coming leader that we all meet here in New Albany and Westerville as our friends at work and stuff. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Master, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you were asked that, what might be, what might be your answer? I mean, you might approach that with just talking about the gospel, how to become a Christian, right? You might say, well, repent of your sin and ask God to forgive you and declare Jesus as the leader of your life, which is another way of saying, make him Lord, make him master of your life and follow Jesus. And that'd be right. I mean, that's, that's, that's a good answer. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Jesus asks him a question. And why does Jesus ask him a question? Have you thought about that before? I mean, is Jesus asking this guy a question because Jesus is a nice, nice young man as well who doesn't know the answer to the question, so he's going to leave the difficult theological and philosophical explanation of this up to the Apostle Paul a few years later? I mean, you can believe that if you want, but you'd be heretical and wrong. But go ahead, try to believe that if you want, right? Good teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? What's going on here? This young man is saying, you are good, Jesus. I want to be good enough. Tell me what I need to do to be that good. And Jesus responds with a question to help him get to the real question he really needs to wrestle with. He says to him, why do you call me good? And I'm I'm sure he probably paused just, just slightly there to let that question sink in. And then Jesus answers his own question. He says, no one is good except God alone. So, If you have to be good to go to heaven, and no one is good but God God alone, then who's going to heaven? No one is, right? No one but God. 
And what Jesus is saying to him is your application to be part of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, has been denied. You don't get to be God in this. His only God is good. None of us are good enough. We all fail and we all sin too much. And if you're here and, and you don't like me saying that because you feel like you're really good and you're good enough, then there's one solution to help you resolve that. You just need to get married. And you'll find out different. Right? I mean, seriously. Jesus also says, if you do these two things to him, he goes on to say, if you do, if you do these two things, if you love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and you love your neighbor as yourself, then you will fulfill all the law and the command and you'll be good enough. And this young man's sincere, honest response to him is, I have done all these things since childhood. This is truly a really nice, really good, really great guy, right? Now imagine if you went to a part of town where nobody really believed in Jesus, almost nobody believed in Jesus. And you ask the question, if there is a heaven, then how do you get there? Nearly the universal answer you would get, and the universal answer of almost all major religions and philosophies all throughout the ages is you need to be good. See, Jesus asked this moral, shining star of the community a question to make him think about what he asked and what the real question is. See, he thinks he's good enough. He's better than most. He's kinder than most. He's more generous than most. He's more moral than most. He is a really good young man. But the reality is, if only God is good, and when Jesus says this and brings that up, this young man goes, yeah, well, that's true. Only God is good. He recognizes that truth, and he recognizes I'm not God. Then the real question he needs to wrestle with for salvation is, what do I need to face about myself so that I'm honest and open with God. And Jesus actually, because he's actually in denial. He's in denial about his own sin. He's in denial. I mean, he's asking for salvation, but he doesn't really feel like he needs the salvation. He feels like he's good enough. So he's kind of asking, I'm good enough. Is there any one more thing I can do? But I really think I'm good enough. He doesn't recognize the evil in his heart. He just wants to focus on the evil out there. And he wants to focus on the fact that I'm really good. I'm better than most, and I should be good enough. But salvation is deeper than that. Salvation from God is about solving the evil within each one of our own hearts. And Jesus' continuing comments with this young man actually help him face the evil in his own heart for which he needs salvation. In this instance, his evil that he's really holding back and not willing to look is his greed. And Jesus confronts that. And this young man walks away somber, finally wrestling with the question, the right question, that he needs to come to terms with in order to find the salvation that Jesus wants. Now, church history uh, uh, has a very strong case, not a conclusive case, that this young man was Barnabas, who later became a father of Jesus and one of the primary missionaries, along with Paul, who made a huge impact all over the world. But he needed to face the evil in his own heart first so he could come honestly and openly to God. You see, too often when we face difficult questions from people around us like this of faith, we feel the pressure, we feel the pull to be the answer people. We feel the pull to start talking too quickly. And the result is we either answer the wrong question and get labeled bigots, 
Or we take away ownership of the reasoning process from the person asking the question. And in the process of doing that, we allow the discussion to become impersonal about arguments of justice and injustice, arguments of good and, good and evil, these intellectual, theoretical, difficult arguments, instead of keeping the discussion a personal one of the life change God wants to bring to each of our hearts, including the person asking us the questions. And questions actually help us redirect those conversations back to the right question. They also help us redirect the conversation back to be personal about that person wrestling with their own relationship with God. And we're going to keep coming back to this idea of questions over the next few weeks, but the text goes on and says, wholeheartedly follow Jesus as your Lord. I mean, sharing our faith is all about inviting people to move toward a wholehearted decision to follow Jesus. But let me just focus, instead of on that, just let me focus on the word wholehearted. A lot of times we misunderstand this because we think of the heart in our culture today differently. We think of the heart as primarily just about emotions and motives today. But in the biblical worldview, in the time that this was written, the idea of heart also included intellectual reasoning. And so the question is, do you know God in both ways? Do you know the intellectual reasons, for example, for your security in him? And do you experience the power to deal with your anxiety when it comes up and move past it to realize that security by finding peace-filled freedom? Do you know and experience in the, in Jesus in that way? And can you share that whole experience with other people? The text goes on and says, and do this with gentleness and respect. Now, we already alluded to this earlier, but let me quickly illustrate it and extend the illustration just to here, and then I'm going to invite you to respond to God. If someone asks you what the Bible teaches about sexuality, do you actually know what the Bible says? And how to find those verses and talk intelligently about them. And can you talk about the truth of Scripture in that regard with someone who disagrees in a way that even if they are remotely reasonable, they walk away with a picture of you and a picture of God as being gracious, kind, and good? Or do they walk away thinking you're intolerant and narrow-minded? Or, back to the old question, will my good grandmother who doesn't believe in Jesus go to hell? Can you have that conversation about what the Bible teaches us around that in a way that the person walks away seeing God as both just and wonderfully gracious and kind? Or will they walk away thinking God is unfair and arbitrarily mean picking winners and losers, lumping you in the category of uncompassionate and ignorant? See, our reasons that we give need to address both the intellectual truth and the emotional and relational reality in ways that bring hope, in ways that build bridges of friendship, in ways that are done with gentleness and respect, and they leave the people with a sense of gospel, with a sense of good news. Now, we all tend to get nervous and fearful of faith conversations a lot of times, don't we? Especially the ones that deal with ultimate reality of heaven and hell or the difficult moral questions. And whether we're on the side in our faith right now of believing in Jesus and wanting to share our faith, or whether we're on the side of our faith where we're still unsure of our faith and a little bit skeptical still of our faith in Jesus, we all often face discomfort in even having these conversations on these topics. 
Our core verse for this series encapsulated in the series graphic is, is really what we long for, isn't it? If you don't believe in Jesus right now, you're uncertain of your belief, you want someone who will be confident and prepared to help you find your own reasons to follow Jesus and work that out yourself. And you want them to do it as a friend would with gentleness and respect. Isn't that true? And if you're one here who believes in Jesus and you want to share your faith with people, you long to be confident. Confident, not cocky, but confident feels good. And we want to be confident in the reasons for our faith and be a really good friend and share it in a way that's gentle and respectful that builds those friendships. The invitation for today and the invitation for this series and the invitation, honestly, for the coming year So I want you to take time to identify areas where you lack confidence in either what you believe or in the reasons why you choose to live one way and not another way. Some of those moral questions. Where do you lack confidence? And maybe you can get at some of those questions you're struggling with too by thinking about your five, the five people we ask you to be praying for in your life who are unchurched or uncertain of their faith and not really actively engaged in pursuing God that you're praying for. And maybe think about what questions they are asking you that you're not confident to talk about with them. And then the second part of the invitation is I want you to commit to growing in that confidence. Growing in the confidence of your own faith and growing in your confidence of not only just knowing the truth about it, but how to share your hope and reasons with gentleness and respect. As we continue worship here in a moment with communion, the symbols of communion actually actually represent for us a lot of what Peter's telling us through here. It represents a God who comes to us so compassionate, so gentle, so real, so respectful, but yet so loving and so pursuing to bring truth with us, to share it boldly with us. And as we take the bread in communion, we just remember that Jesus came in the flesh to befriend us, to demonstrate through 33 years of living among us as a human, patient, the patient and gentle love of a God who wants to forgive us, who wants to forgive us, who wants to restore a relationship to him with us, who wants to restore even the damage in our lives that sin and suffering and pain and, and abuse and all those things have happened in our lives so that we can be restored to the intended very good that he originally created us to be. And as we take the juice and we remember God gave his last ounce of his lifeblood, He held nothing back. He gave it all perfectly, completely, forever, securing forgiveness and relationship with us. If you don't know God that way and you want to know God that way, I want to invite you to come talk with me and we'll help you process those decisions for you. If the servers for communion can come right now, let me just pray for you as they're coming. Lord, we just welcome you here with us. And Father... I pray that you would help us now and this week for those areas where we just feel so anxious and so unstable because we, we, we know what the Bible says or we think we know what the Bible says and, but that makes us feel uncomfortable and we've got friends over here who think different or we think different and it just feels like we're pulled and we don't know how to land in that. Lord, I pray that you would bring us to this place of confidence that we can find the peace and security in knowing the because, the why, that we live this way as followers of you. Lord, those questions that we have that we're we're uncertain of, that we, we don't know how to talk about with people, Lord, I pray that you would help us 
to gain the wisdom and the understanding and even the emotional maturity, Lord, to be able to deal with those difficult things with grace, with peace, with gentleness. That we would know the joy of representing you in that way. Because, God, even the picture of that feels good to us. To be able to have those conversations without animosity, to have those conversations with, with kindness and peace, to be able to talk honestly and not have to hide because we're afraid it's going to go haywire. Lord, would you teach us to be that kind of winsome people so we can be free to be who we are in following you and free to share your good news. Lord, that we can know the joy of that peace and abundance you bring to us and we can know the even greater joy of being able to share that peace and abundance with our friends, with our family, with our co-workers and see how good you can make our life and their life. So Lord, we ask for that grace in this season. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.